Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Big stories. Big guests. The Big Picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, the way things seem to be going in the United States, they may need a vaccine to, to bail them out. And, and obviously, ultimately, look, I, we are going to need a vaccine as a more permanent kind of uh, response to COVID-19. And in the meantime, to figure out how best to, to mitigate the risk and try to keep this virus in check. Now, we're still a ways away from a vaccine. But there's some encouraging signs. In fact, already there's one that I guess we could say is technically approved for use uh, in China. One of the vaccines uh, being worked on there, the Chinese government has approved it for use exclusively right now, though, for the military. But I guess that still does represent an accomplishment. We do have other, a couple other candidates uh, in phase three trials, which is kind of the last stage. Uh, one of them is the uh, Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. They've got 8,000 volunteers enrolled for their phase three trial. Uh, they say they're seeing the right kind of immune response, but still trying to urge some caution on the time frame here. We've seen some data in recent days as well from some other vaccine candidates. Uh, the Pfizer uh, RNA vaccine, some encouraging data on that one. So, um, again, we're seeing some good news here, but obviously there, there's still a ways to go. And, you know, this is still incredibly rapid pace. Uh, when it comes to developing and approving a new vaccine, which would typically uh, take years to do. Uh, so joining us uh, for an update on on that side of things and a few other things I wanted to touch on here, very pleased to welcome back to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, Assistant Professor and Canada Research Chair of the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba. Dr. Kinderchuk, great to, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Yes, thank you so much for having me on again. Uh, so for those who are following the, the uh, vaccine developments and the uh, ones that are moving on to phase three, the, the data we're seeing from some of the phase one and two uh, trials here from some of these candidates, it, it, it does seem promising. What, what's your sense of, of how things are progressing? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I, I look at this from the standpoint of, you know, historically how we've done with the vaccine development. And what we're seeing right now is, you know, a, a virus that emerged six months ago uh, has spread across the, the globe in rapid time and a nearly simultaneous uh, increase in, in vaccine research to, to try and find not only a single candidate vaccine, but essentially numerous uh, vaccine candidates that we could get licensed and get out to, uh, to the general public and to vulnerable populations, uh, you know, within hopefully that, that 12 to 18 month period. And, and I think everybody, you know, it should be, I guess we only need to be unbelievably appreciative of the fact that um, you know, we have just an amazing wealth of, uh, of not only technology, but uh, of intelligence that, that's being poured into this, uh, you know, including here in Canada, uh, people far smarter than me that are doing this work. And, and it's really a privilege to, to see people pushing this hard uh, with, with this type of a public health crisis in the background. 
Indeed. And what's interesting, too, and, and you know, there, there are different ways of developing a vaccine, different ways in which, you know, you try to, to get that immune response uh, in the body. And some that we, we haven't really used before, at least in humans, the RNA, the DNA vaccines. And I mentioned the one from Pfizer, I believe, is, is RNA-based vaccine. Mm-hmm. And, and to put it in layman's terms, I mean, it sounds like that's kind of, you know, you're, you're giving the body the instructions on, on how to, to deal with this virus. Is that how those work? Yeah, you know, kind of sort of. You know, what they're basically doing is maybe moving a little bit away from just the traditional vaccine where you're just trying to essentially get uh, antibodies developed and, and get basically a, a long-term memory response. But you actually are essentially training the immune cells to, to recognize when cells are infected. So the, the problem with some of the, the more antibody-based uh, vaccines is that, you know, the, the reliance is on the fact that the antibodies will help inhibit or stop the virus uh, or the, the microbe from infecting cells. But the problem is, if the infection starts, then the antibodies uh, aren't going to be able to, to restrict that. So things like the, the RNA vaccines um, actually train cells to be able to identify those, those infected cells. So for for viruses that, you know, kind of get into cells really quickly and linger for, for a longer period of time, um, it, it's, it's an amazing technology. And, and there does seem to be, um, you know, quite a bit of push to, to make this uh, something for, uh, for COVID. Um, it's, you know, it hasn't been well used in the past for, uh, you know, for at least for human vaccines. Um, this will be one of the first, but I think we're, we're getting to that stage where this is, you know, a, a pretty impressive uh, move forward and, in, in, again, in record time. Indeed. And we, we mentioned the uh, Oxford, uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine set to go into phase mm-hmm. three trials. Now, that's obviously a, a big step in all of this. But traditionally, phase three trials can last not just months, even, but years, right? Because you're giving the, the volunteers the vaccine and then you're just kind of sitting back and observing them. So how, how can you reasonably or responsibly accelerate that time frame? Yeah, this is such a good question, right? You know, and especially when you're looking at a, a large population. And I think what what they're trying to really do with this is, is a couple of things. I mean, one, um, you know, a lot of different groups, and you know, beyond uh, just the Oxford, uh, the Oxford group, um, are looking at basically scaling up production of these vaccines uh, in tandem with moving through the different clinical trials. That way, at the very least, if they pass, um, ultimately we have you know we have those those products ready to go, and if they fail. You know, nothing, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Um, I think what we're looking at here is kind of this unique situation where we don't have a, a long period of time, I think, to work out all of the, I think, kind of long-term details, uh, you know, as far as how long immunity is going to last, um, you know, and, and some of those variables. I think what they're trying to do is really use prior information that we have um, that is used somewhat as a benchmark to say, okay, if we meet these criteria in these shorter-term studies, if we get basically these check marks um, that are in agreement with what we've seen with other studies, then it likely indicates that over the long term that this vaccine is going to be viable. And I think it's you know if we were looking at something that um, that wasn't a pandemic, um, you, you would maybe uh, wonder whether or not uh, we should be pushing things as quickly. But we, we don't have a choice. We have no vaccines. We have no therapeutics. We have no pre-existing immunity. Right and. We may end up then with multiple vaccines, and maybe some might be more akin to what we have with a flu shot. Maybe we'll find some that'll be longer lasting, but it's about trying to get, I guess, as, as many good candidates on the table right now as we can. 
Well, and I think you want to have different vaccine candidates that uh, may be used in different populations. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. when we when we look at this uh, right now, you know, we're, we're kind of looking, you know, thinking or keeping in mind, you know, what what is the average patient um, that, that would be getting this vaccine? And we have to think, you know, when we look at different regions of the world, what are the different health requirements or health situations that these vaccines are going into? Um, the Even the deliverability, you know, places that I work in Africa, um, if you have something that requires cold chain storage, this becomes more of an issue if you're doing a, a large continental uh, vac- vaccination strategy. So I think this idea of having, you know, more than one candidate is is where we need to be. And yes, it's, it's going to cost money in the end, but we need we need to do it. And Jill, let me just ask you about this. We've got a couple of minutes here. I mean, it might seem very on brand for 2020 to, to see a second potential pandemic, but this H1N1 uh, new influenza strain they found in China, uh, potentially it seems spreading from, from pigs to humans. Um, what do you make of what we've seen so far? How, how alarmed or how vigilant should we be about this? Yeah, you know, listen, I'm, you know, as somebody who works in emerging viruses, uh, I put out a tweet last week, uh, you know, basically saying, uh, is it interesting? Yep. Is it worrisome? Not yet. Um, it, this is, I think this harkens back to the value of doing surveillance and, and really being able to identify that, yes, we have uh, a, a potential new flu strain that could be problematic uh, if it happens to pick up the right machinery to, to start transmitting from human to human. And we've seen this with, with other flu strains uh, over the last uh, decade or couple of decades. Um, but I think what it, what it really gives us is, you know, hopefully kind of a, a bit of a kick in the butt to say, okay, you know what? viruses do not wait, uh, you know, in line or in queue for, you know, one pandemic to end before something else emerges. Um, and there is no set time frame in between these. So we need to start thinking more strategically about how we can actually combat these, these types of events um, prior to them uh, occurring, uh, rather than trying to do this uh, in real time. Because obviously in six months, We've seen the devastation that that a brand new virus uh, can can wreak on both public health and as well as on uh, national economies. Indeed. We'll leave it there. Uh, Jason, thanks for the insight and uh, thanks for making some time for us here today. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Uh, that's uh, Dr. Jason uh, Kinderchuk, Assistant Professor, Canada Research Chair of the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases, University of Manitoba. So his thoughts on how things are progressing with a vaccine and some positive signs there and saying, you know, let's not freak out just yet over this uh, reported new flu strain uh, discovered in China. But look, this pandemic that we're currently dealing with can hopefully be a wake up call about how important it is to be vigilant with regard to new and, and emerging viruses and, and to recognize that, yes, when it comes to interactions with animals, and obviously it's an issue here too, you know, we're not immune from this, that, that there's, there's a need for, for vigilance and proper protocols and techniques there. So want to keep an eye on. But I mean, if you want to talk about why what's happening in the U.S. is relevant, which should be obvious, uh, but just look at what it's doing to the tourism sector and what was very quiet Canada Day in Banff yesterday. Uh, normally this time of year, there would be tourists from the U.S., from all around the world, descending upon Banff. And it's a community obviously very much dependent on tourism and clearly very hard hit by this whole pandemic. I think there's a hope that for the national parks, for Banff, for Jasper, uh, that Albertans will fill some of that void because obviously uh, we're also limited in where we can travel, and for the most part, the idea of traveling internationally not really on the table. 
so I, I do want to talk a bit about how, how these communities are faring, but I also wanted to talk about this idea that seems to be gaining some traction. It's been talked about for some time, uh, the idea of running a train, a train that would link Calgary and Banff, more specifically the Calgary Airport, Calgary Downtown, and Banff. The idea's been out for a while, as I say. We uh, learned recently uh, that there was going to be a federal study that the Canada Infrastructure Bank is going to conduct a study, pay for the study, uh, but to see just how feasible it is and what kind of issues uh, there might be. Now, last week, or, or I guess, or was it earlier this week? Almost feels like we've entered a different week, but we had the big announcement from the Premier about the uh, economic uh, recovery strategy. And it, it certainly appears as though this idea of a Calgary to Banff train is one that the provincial government is open to. I think the idea that the Canada Infrastructure Bank would play a big role seems tempting to the Alberta government and recognizing that, you know, there, there are going to be challenges going forward for the tourism sector. So joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Karen Sorensen, who is the mayor of Banff. Mayor Sorensen, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Rob. Nice to chat with you this afternoon. Likewise, appreciate making some time for us. Uh, you know, just looking at, at yesterday, what I'm sure was a very uh, quiet and unusual uh, Canada Day for Banff. Uh, what, what have you been seeing lately, though, in, in terms of, uh, you know, Albertans starting to, to return to, to Banff and, and, and to fill that tourism void? Well, thanks for asking. We certainly took our time in the mountain communities to sort of openly welcome people back because we did want to prepare appropriately to mm. assure that our visitors uh, consider themselves uh, safe when they're here, and we did put some protocols and changes in place to do that. You know, for Albertans, the Canadian Rockies are their backyard. For all Canadians, uh, Banff National Park, of course, is is, is their world. Um, but we so appreciate our Albertans, and we have had a few very busy summers in the Rockies, and so um, this big change is very hard on the economy, but it is giving us a great opportunity to see Albertans coming back. Uh, the best way I describe it is a little bit now to me like maybe February would be where the weekends are busy-er. Mm -hmm. uh, Midweek is still very quiet, uh, but we have sort of weekend by weekend by weekend starting to started to see our Albertan neighbors uh, come back and enjoy the town of Banff and Banff National Park, and that is uh, very welcomed by all of us. Yeah, that's encouraging. Uh, so let's talk about this idea of, of the Calgary to Banff train. Um, first of all, what, I mean, have, have you been involved in, in any of these conversations that, that have been taking place, or what's your sense of what's going on right now? Yeah, I haven't been directly involved in the discussion around the MOU that has just recently been signed between the government of Alberta and the Canada Infrastructure Bank. But to your point, as mentioned earlier, this idea has been talked about uh, for quite some time. Um, and Banff, as well as other communities, did participate in a regional mass transit study in 2019 that spoke to uh, the fact that mass transit is uh, feasible, rail, bus, uh, as the options uh, coming into the to the valley, of course, we're very pleased to see Premier Kenny voice support for passenger rail connecting Calgary, Banff, and the Bow Valley. It makes sense that he held this project up as a possibility, um, an example of big picture, long term thinking as part of Alberta's new economic recovery plan. It would certainly have a positive impact on creating jobs and create 
enormous economic benefits for the entire Bow Valley for, for many decades to come. So we all need to understand it is still very much just in the study phase, but it's very promising to have the project identified as clearly as it was as a possibility. Right. And uh, look, for, for folks in Calgary or in southern Alberta, I mean, Banff is, is accessible and, uh, you know, that, that, that highway, uh, highway 1 uh, on those, those weekends, as you say, can be very busy. But this is also, I think, about that bigger picture of, of tourism, too. And obviously, there's no international airport in Banff, so people fly to Calgary and then have to figure out, uh, rent a car, take a bus, how are we going to get to the mountains? So this, w- this would make it very easy for people, wouldn't it? Yeah, I can say fairly confidently. I mean, we've been meeting and talking about mass transit with Calgary, Canmore, Cochrane, uh, ID9, which is, is the Lake Louise area, um, for some time now. And I would say we are all united in the belief that regional mass transit is critical uh, to the sustainability of our communities um, and certainly an enormous economic, environment, and social opportunity uh, for Alberta. And, and rail uh, could certainly provide that a return of this kind of mass transit connecting in uh, Calgary and Banff and all our communities in between, as mentioned, uh, would certainly maintain our economic and our environmental uh, resilience mm-hmm. comparable to how the the first railways, of course, were were a catalyst to Canada's uh, coming of age. Uh, arriving by rail in Banff, I mean, it's wonderful to think about. It's our history. Uh, That is how our visitors always arrived in Banff uh, historically, and it would be a fantastic experience for any uh, visitor, international or Canadian or even our neighbours from Calgary. So, you know, we believe a Bow Valley Rail service would enhance the return on investments that municipalities have made. You may be familiar, we have local transit now, Rome Transit, that expands, and we think that the two could work very, very well together and uh, allow for people to visit the national parks and the communities without the use of a vehicle. Right, and yeah, and that's an important point because, you know, and, and ideally you, you could, you know, take a bus, take a train to Banff and then not have to worry about how you're going to get around, right? And so, you know, people maybe are conditioned to think, okay, we're going to go to the mountains, we'll hop in the car, we've got to be able to, to drive around when we get there. So if you can give people that option, I, I think it, it can really enhance that experience, have some environmental benefits, as you say. So if we're going to continue to increase that in the coming years, does that put more of a burden on BAMP then? Are you going to have to expand that, that Rome service? Or, or how are you going to manage then if we're successful in getting, to people, getting people to BAMP without having to rely on their vehicles? Well, it would certainly be our hope to continue to enhance and increase mass transit and get people out of their individual vehicles. I, I know that's a desire of the town of Banff specifically, and I'm sure uh, many communities across Canada are working to get people out of their individual uh, vehicles just to reduce the traffic uh, congestion, not only in the communities, but on the highway as well. Uh, in Banff, uh, we see about 4 million visitors traveling to the National Park every year, and in the not, we won't talk about this summer, but <laughs> in the last few summers, we've had an average of almost 29 thousand vehicles each day going through the town and our town has a capacity for 24,000 vehicles before significant traffic delays occur Mm -hmm. and being a community in a national park we can't build our way out of this situation where we can't just go build a ring road around the town of uh, Banff and so we need to be creative in how we move people which was how Rome Transit um, 
was created, uh, really starting back in 2010. And, you know, very proud to say, uh, last year, over, I think it was like 1.3 million riders on Rome Transit, which is pretty remarkable for a little transit system between Canmore and Banff and out into the park. So certainly... Having people not have to drive, um, I, I mean, from my perspective, I think it's more enjoyable not to drive, and uh, they can have a very different experience. And, of course, to your point, there's also environmental benefits and, and economic and social uh, connectivity benefits as well. Well, and I do wonder, too, because, you know, the, the, the circumstances of the here and now have, have maybe prompted this, but I'm curious what the reaction has been uh, or the impact has been having that part of Banff Avenue closed mm. to vehicles and, and giving more space to pedestrians. Do you think it's the kind of thing that, that could work in a, in a quote-unquote quote, normal summer? I think we have to take this opportunity this summer to observe this, but based, you know, or, or based on the conversation you and I are currently having, it has an awful lot to do with vehicular traffic. So we are a small town, we're on a small footprint, we don't have a lot of roads, and we have a lot of cars. And Banff Avenue is our main artery right through town. So if you took Banff Avenue away from vehicular traffic on a long-term basis, even if it was seasonally, Mm -hmm. we better have something else to do with those vehicles, because (laughs) right now there's just no place else for them to go. So you're right, the thought that we could put them on mass transit, the people who are visiting on mass transit get those cars parked. We're delighted. We do have this new parking lot at the train station. We're so grateful for it. 500 stalls, it makes a big difference. Uh, but based on the number of vehicles that come in and out of town, um, we need to get people out of their cars and walking or using alternate modes of transportation when they're here. All right, and with regard to the uh, train idea, um, you know, as we say, there, there's a long way to go. But with this memorandum of understanding, even what you've heard from the premier, does it sound like there's maybe some momentum behind this idea now? Well, I think momentum is a is a fair word. Absolutely, there's momentum around it. Um, the uh, Canada Infrastructure Bank. Uh, a member from that organization was quoted as saying we wouldn't have put it out there if we didn't have some uh, serious thoughts behind it. And Premier Kenny, Kenny himself said, you know, that he, he, he's kind of a fan. But uh, we definitely, uh, I think more in his words than mine, we have to look at um, the economics and the engineering study. And there are a lot of things to look at, not the least of which is building another track uh, that runs parallel to the current uh, CP track that, that uh, operates today with, um, with cargo. So there's a lot to consider, but this is absolutely a great first step. And the fact that both the federal and the provincial levels of government are considering it and talking about it and talking together about it um, is really uh, very positive from my perspective. All right, well, we'll leave there for now and uh, see where this idea goes from here. And in the meantime, uh, as mentioned, uh, BAMP is, is open. Uh, if yes, are looking you. for a getaway. Uh, Mayor Sorensen, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thanks, Rob, very much. And yes, please come see us. It's beautiful here. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Take care. That is Karen Sorensen, uh, the mayor of BAMP, and some thoughts on you know what they're dealing with in the here and now uh, with this whole situation. But also more of this idea of uh, building uh, that train link. So the Alberta government, and you heard from the Premier, that there's an openness there. Not a commitment to this necessarily, but okay, maybe there's, there's something there. As Post Media points out, there was a uh, report commissioned last year by Banff, Cochrane, Canmore, and Calgary, found that it would be feasible to build this. However, 
you'd be looking at a price tag of around $680 million and an operating subsidy of $9 million annually, potentially. So, yeah, look, certainly the last few months have just wreaked havoc on, I think, what we could sort of refer to as, in blanket terms as the entertainment industry. You know, making movies, making TV shows, that's all been put on hold. Concerts, well, I haven't been having those. Uh, and for comedy as well, just the comedy industry. This has been really tough. I mean, musicians can go into a studio and, and record a song, but for comedians, the studio is the club, is the auditorium. It's where the people are. It's about performing in front of a crowd. It's about feeding off of that laughter from the crowd. So I would imagine this has been a real tough few months for comedians, not being able to do what they do or trying to find different ways, I guess, of, of connecting with fans. Now, in, like a lot of other industries, we're starting to see a, a kind of slow and gradual return to normal. And, and the good news is, if you've been missing comedy, comedy is back with some precautions in place, but uh, things are back up and running at the Laugh Shop at the Hotel Blackfoot. Uh, so tonight, tomorrow, and Saturday, 8 p.m., opportunity once again to see and enjoy some live comedy. More details at laughshopcalgary.com. But performing tonight and this weekend uh, is, well, originally from Newfoundland, I guess we can call him Calgary's own, Calgary-based comedian Trent McClellan. More at his website, trentscomedy.com. Trent, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, I mean, look, I, everyone's been been struggling the last few months, obviously, dealing with this this new reality, and it's impacted and disrupted a lot of different industries. But talk a bit about what it's been like just as, as a comedian. The clubs are closed. You don't have that, that direct way to connect with fans. What's it been like for you guys? Yeah, for me in particular, it was... Uh it's a pretty terrifying experience to think that the profession you've been doing for the last 16 years no longer exists, like just vanishes in thin air overnight. So uh, going back to March, I was just starting a cross country tour. So I was in Atlantic Canada and uh, was four shows in and then we had to shut down. So um, it's a terrifying feeling to think that maybe we'll never get back to performing live in front of an audience again. You know, that, that was especially those early weeks and months of, of this whole thing. I mean, there were no answers and just things were getting progressively worse. So uh, it was a terrifying time, uh, no doubt about it. And of course, as you said in your opening, it's, it's like we need that live audience. We need that feedback. It's, it's about us saying something and knowing that we're connecting with an audience immediately. You know, so you can write all you want and you can, you know, workshop stuff in your condo or house or write it out, but you'll only know if it works or not by going live in front of an audience and seeing what their feedback is. So, uh, yeah. so yeah, it's a pretty terrifying and unsettling time for, for comedians everywhere. I can imagine. Now, you're originally from out east, but were you, so did you end up stranded out there at the time or, or did you manage to get back <laughs> to Calgary? I just got back in under the wire, yeah. I kind of uh, shut it down. I was actually on my way to the next gig. And uh, my manager's like, look, man, like this is this is getting progressively worse. And uh, there actually weren't any confirmed cases yet in Atlantic Canada when I was there. But it was it was kind of more starting out west and, and of course, in Ontario and Quebec. And so you knew you're walking right into it and people were starting to get a little bit afraid to come out to shows and stuff. So uh, we were like, yeah, let's let's pull the plug. And so I, I managed to get back to Calgary uh, just in time. 
I, I did see some comedians, you know, in, in recent weeks or the last few months, you know, try to find different ways of connecting to try to do kind of like a live stream, like with the Zoom technology. So that way you're, you're still broadcasting to people, but you also want to have them included so you can hear the laughter. I, it, it seems awkward, but it's just, as you say, I mean, it's so fundamental to, to what you guys do, right? I mean, did, did you manage to find any of those outlets over the last few months? I kind of ended up hosting a few events, you know, like a virtual pub night for yeah. Calvary FC, and I did something for Memorial University, my alma mater, and uh, did something did stuff like that. But in terms of straight stand-up, I didn't really do anything with regards to that. I did go on, like, Facebook Live a couple of times and just take questions from people or give them an update as to what I'm doing. But I kind of found myself in a weird place where it's like, you know, you, you're a human being like everybody else, and so you're kind of going through this thing and feeling uncertain. But I also felt a little bit of a responsibility to provide some levity or some perspective, you know, because people were kind of hurting and people were in some dark places. And I was like, man, like, you might be comedians now more than ever, ironically, you know, but we can't actually go out and do our jobs. So I kind of just tried to, you know, do some, put some funny stuff online, whether it's old clips or just like, you know, videos of me doing whatever or write some stuff that was inspirational, but just trying to keep spirits up for people and keep morale up. So, uh, yeah, it's ironic that I, I felt more of a duty to do it, but was unable to do it uh, in person. So it's a strange time. Well, it is. And, and obviously, the, these are big issues, right? It's not, not just the pandemic, obviously, and that's on everybody's minds. But obviously, in you know recent weeks, we've seen some pretty important conversations uh, about justice and racism and policing and, you know, to see these protests. So and we're, we're living through such important times. And, you know, and, and I know a lot of this affects you directly. I mean, so, I mean, how are you processing all of this and how does that affect you as, as a comedian? Well, I think as comedians, one of the great things about our job is we can take some pretty sensitive topics and then we put it through the filter of comedy and and people can process it that way. You know, I think a lot of times, especially now when you have so many things that you're juggling in your mind and in your psyche, um, sometimes it's a comedian's job to kind of sit with those things a little longer and let it marinate and then run it through a comedic lens if possible and then putting it, put it out on the other end and people go, yeah, that's kind of what I was feeling. I just didn't really know, didn't really know how to yeah. word it or I wouldn't have used that analogy or that metaphor. And I think that's what our job has always been. You know, our job is always to notice things. And sometimes there are things that you also notice or things that you don't even realize you noticed until I mention it on stage, you know? So right. I feel like that's what our, what our job has kind of always been. And I think uh, no, no time more important than right now. Yeah, and I mean, there are outlets to have serious conversations, you know, for comedians, and you got social media, and you do podcasts and, and conversations like this. When you're on stage, and when you're at a show, especially right now, and, and trying to balance, look, this is what's going on, this is what people are thinking about, this is our reality right now, but at the same time, you know, the folks here at the Comedy Club are maybe looking for a distraction from all of that, right? So how, how do you find that, I don't know, is it about finding a medium or a balance, or, or how do you approach it? I do, too, with my comedy. I feel like, you know, there's always that line, you know, like I'm never in the business of trying to offend anybody or make anyone feel overly uncomfortable. But I think, you know, the goal is always to make people laugh and, and ensure that they have a good time. Now, that might mean a topic might go down a road that you're not really you haven't really spent a lot of time on or maybe you don't feel overly comfortable going down that road. But it's kind of our job to, to do that 
uh, my act itself is a lot of just everyday stuff, you know? So mm-hmm. it's, it's just, you know, frustrations that I get in life. Like, that's where comedy comes from. It comes from stuff not working out. No one wants to hear the story about how everything worked out for you. <laughs> it's like there's nothing, nothing humorous about that at all. It comes from frustration and not understanding these damn scooters that are driving around town. And it's just, you know, we're, we're always trying to, to, uh, to figure out our world. And that's where we connect. You know, we connect with our struggles. We don't connect with the successes that we have in life. I think we connect with the stuff that doesn't work out. Like, yeah, me too. I don't understand why they're always paving Deerfoot. Like, why is that done every single, you know, so it's all those things that I think that we all kind of connect with over time. So that's where my stand-ups always come from. So when you get on a stage tonight, so is this going to be your first time on stage really since, since March? Yeah, I'm not going to know which way to face. I mean, I'm going <laughs> to just go up and face the wall and have someone come up and just grab my shoulders and turn me around. So uh, I've been going through my, my set list and going, what did I used to talk about? Like, what were, what were my bits? So I've been going over that stuff the last couple of days just to kind of refresh your, my memory because it's like, you know what I used to think about? I used to think about, you know, bands back in the day when you'd see them on stage and they'd have like a, a monitor in front of them with the, the lyrics on it. And I would be like, well, you... <laughs> But you wrote those songs. Like, how do you not remember? And then you get into the world of stand-up, and you're like, oh, yeah. If you don't do a song for three months, you pr- it probably goes away. You probably forget how it goes. So I've had to kind of go back and refresh my memory about uh, some of the topics that I was talking about. So, But I'm excited, man. As I said, I, I didn't even know if I'd ever get a chance to do this again, and I mean that sincerely. So uh, I'll be one grateful comic come 8 o'clock tonight. I'll bet. And I mean, it, it, this is a step back in the right direction. Things are going to be a little bit different at the club. And I mean, even just the nature of the business, right? You guys are used to almost living on the road. You got a hometown advantage for now and <laughs> you're yeah. here and there's a comedy club here, but you're not going to be traveling and folks aren't going to be flying in to do shows here. So a lot of the, the nature of the business is, is still kind of up in the air, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. You know, it's one of those things where people are uh, trying to figure it out and it's changing every single day. And for our show, at this hour is 22 minutes, we have to wait to see kind of what a production year is going to look like. How many folks are going to be on set? Um, do we have to self-quarantine when we go back or just before? And so there's still a lot of questions. Uh, networks are trying to figure out what they can put on. Will there be NHL playoffs? Will that affect what we're doing? So a lot more questions than answers at this point, but uh, you just navigate it one day at a time. Yeah, as you say, I mean, yeah, doing a TV show like uh, this hour is 22 minutes. That's, yeah, so they, they haven't really given any indication, I guess, have they, about what, what they're planning or what kind of a timeline they're on, and so much of that's uh, uh, uncertain, isn't it? Yeah, it's one of those things where you, you know the season's coming back, you just don't really know when it's going to start and what production itself will look like. So we have to, uh, you know, be optimistic and be prepared for all the different scenarios. So it's it's uh, which is which is strangely not different than what we do normally on twenty two minutes. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> uh, let's mention more at uh, trendscomedy.com, but uh, yeah, on stage tonight at the Laugh Shop tonight, tomorrow, and Saturday, eight o'clock, I believe, uh, all three nights. Uh, so they, they are limiting space to a hundred people. So reserve your seat uh, ASAP. More at laughshopcalgary.com. Uh, Trent, all the best uh, with this weekend and, and whatever lies ahead. And thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to seeing everyone tonight. Appreciate it. All right, take care. Uh, that is Calgary-based comedian, Newfoundland zone, but Calgary-based comedian uh, Trent McClellan, uh, as mentioned, is going to be part of season 26 
Uh, this hour has 22 minutes whenever they get around to, to making that. Uh, but yeah, for the first time in months, uh, back on a stage. And you got to think for people, that, that's their life. That's what they do. You know, I mean, uh, things changed for a lot of us back in March. But for some of us, right, it was, okay, what you did at work, now you're doing it at home. But yeah, if that's, if that's what you do for a living, well, who knows when you're going to be doing that again. So some steps towards normalcy. Uh, so as mentioned, they're limiting space to 100 people at the laugh shop. They're going to have people spread out all the, uh, the, the protocols that are still in place. Now they say staff are going to be wearing masks. It's not a requirement for those attending, but if you're comfortable wearing one, uh, you're, you're certainly free to wear one. They'll have hand sanitizer at the entrances, disposable menus, and uh, all of those uh, protocols in place. So, I mean, other than that, it's comedy in the comedy club with comedians on stage making people laugh. And I think a lot of people have been craving that. LaughShopCalgary.com. It is mentioned more. TrentsComedy.com. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.